Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Wednesday, November 1st. I'm Hannah Floor. The trawl fishery is often criticized over salmon bycatch, especially when it comes to Chinook in western Alaska. Increasingly, residents have pointed out that bycatch is one of the reasons subsistence fishing has been closed for years. Researchers are looking at ways to further reduce the number of Chinook salmon scooped up in those nets. Evan Erickson reports from Bethel. Thousands of Chinook salmon that would otherwise make their way to the Yukon and Kuskokwim rivers are intercepted at sea, and the region's people are very aware of the issue. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, more than half of the estimated roughly 32,000 Chinook caught by the Bering Sea and Aleutian Islands Pollock trawl fisheries in 2020 were from western Alaska stocks. That year, the Yukon River was completely closed to the subsistence harvest of these fish for the first time ever, and it hasn't reopened since. The Pollock fleet has strict limits regarding bycatch, and while boats have remained below their Chinook bycatch cap, researchers are looking at ways to further reduce the number of the fish that get scooped up. Sabrina Garcia is a biologist with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game and is in the middle of a five-year project as part of her Ph.D. studies. She says her research is aimed at helping streamline the way the Alaska Pollock fishery is regulated. So there is a chance that we try to create these models and we don't find that that winning combination of variables that accurately predicts Chinook salmon presence. These models are being used in other fisheries and they work for things like turtles and whales. And, you know, can we apply that to Chinook salmon? And if so, that's going to be one more piece of information that can hopefully help them further reduce their Chinook salmon bycatch. The five-year tagging and modeling project is part of Garcia's Ph.D. research through the University of Alaska Fairbanks Pollock Conservation Cooperative Research Center. The goal is to come out with these predictive maps of Chinook salmon distribution across space and across time. Now, I don't know, based on the data that I have, am I going to get a predictive map for every day of the year? Currently, the Pollock fleet operates under rolling hotspot closures that change based on real-time Chinook bycatch data provided by vessels to a private monitoring group called Sea State. While the system has helped reduce Chinook bycatch so far, Garcia says that it lacks the fine-scale depth data needed to better understand their ocean habitat. She hopes the predictive maps can offer Pollock captains another tool for avoiding bycatch. Ultimately, this is going to be a tool for them, and if they don't have input along the way and they don't have buy-in, along the way, then it's it's not going to work. But to create the necessary models, they need reliable data from what are known as pop-up satellite archival tags, or PSATs. These are small devices programmed to detach from Chinook salmon after nine months at sea, float to the surface, and transmit what Garcia hopes will be brand new insights about Chinook migration patterns, especially stocks from western Alaska. They get attached to the Chinook on a little backpack, And what those tags do is they are recording depth, temperature, and light level. Together, these three metrics track the movements of a tagged species in the ocean. We have temperature at depth, and we know the rate at which light gets filtered through the water column. And these amazing models can use that information to basically geolocate that information. Garcia's project advisor has already deployed 35 of the tags in the Bering Sea, and Garcia is gearing up to attach 19 more of the little backpacks next year. She says that catching Chinook using rod and reel gear on the open ocean is like finding a needle in a haystack. Even when it does work, sometimes it's in vain. Some of them can die. Some of them can't get eaten by a salmon shark. Some of them can get eaten by a whale. Some of them can die because it was just 
they didn't have enough food in their stomachs and they just died. Garcia says the model her research group hopes to develop is intended to dovetail with the system already in place. As she juggles her Ph.D. studies, her research, and her full-time employment with the state, she says she is more eager than ever to dive into the Chinook data that will soon begin pouring in. I'm, you know, hoping beyond hope that this is something that does help industry reduce bycatch. But this project is just the beginning. Garcia says she's already setting plans to research what is happening in the open ocean to chum salmon as well. In Bethel, I'm Evan Erickson. Many more children in Petersburg are in an outdoor child care program now that it's managed by the local hospital. That was the message from the Petersburg Medical Center's community wellness team when they testified before the hospital board last week. Last year, PMC partnered with Kinderskog, a local nature-based child care provider, to host an after-school youth programming. Katie Homeland is PMC's youth program coordinator. She said under the hospital's stewardship, the program has grown exponentially. They were able to serve about 120 kids this summer, which is about 60% of Petersburg's elementary school population. Holman says Kinderskog has been able to branch off into several new pilot programs. We had four different programs, Kinderskog, Forest Kindy. We had our first theater-focused orca camp with Mr. Brad, who is hoping to come back next summer and expand that camp. Um, and then we hosted pods again with the help of our wellness department. We enjoyed a really fun day at the Kestrel with touch tanks. We had a tour and a dive demo. We had our fifth annual celebration of Mud Day, which is a huge event. Um, we build 10 mud kitchens. The kids have a mud pie bake-off. It's the highlight of summer. And demand is high. Even now, 59 families are currently on the wait list. The program opens up on a first-come, first-served basis. But close to half of the children enrolled have a parent who worked for the medical center. Kelly's Zweifel is the hospital's clinic director. She says continuing to house programs like Kinderskog can further PMC's goal to retain its employees, something the hospital has been struggling to do in recent years. One of the other things that was brought up with PMC taking on child care in this pilot program was about staff retention and recruitment. We know that by having the program, PMC's staff have access to child care. One of the hospital board's concerns is the safety of the program and their liability if a kid gets hurt. Some programs involve outdoor activities like fishing, wayfinding, and even trips to the nearby glacier. Holman says the issue was top of mind for community wellness department. And youth programs underwent a safety audit in early October and performed well. She says the activities on their roster and all the risks that accompany them are key to building childhood resilience. And the data shows it's a lot more than just babysitting. They sent out a survey to parents of the participants and received overwhelmingly positive feedback about how the program is helping kids reach developmental milestones. A lot of people are strongly agreeing that resiliency is increasing, creativity, patience, positive self-talk, confidence, problem-solving skills, and my personal favorite, the sense of wonder and curiosity, which is also an important skill to have. And it helps develop resiliency and allows you some tools to help get you through really hard times and even trauma. Kind of exciting to see those things noticed by our families. The board will make its decision on whether or not it will continue to host Kinderskog and other youth programs at its next meeting on December 7th. Southeast communities felt the shudder of two earthquakes last Friday evening. The pair of magnitude 5-plus quakes happened about 45 minutes apart near Glacier Bay National Park. 
and more than three dozen smaller aftershocks followed through the weekend. People as far away as Juno and Whitehorse felt them. Alaska Earthquake Center seismologist Natalia Rupert said moderate quakes like these are not surprising for the region. These are common, although they are infrequent, maybe once every uh, three, four years. So it kind of fades away from people's minds. Over the past decades, a few significant quakes have shaken southeast Alaska. Most recently, in 2017, a pair of magnitude 6-plus quakes near Haines caused some damage in Whitehorse. Quakes in southeast Alaska often happen near two faults. The Denali Fault, which extends south from the Alaska Range through southeast Alaska, and the Fairweather Fault, which runs along the coast. In this case, the quakes came from a strip of land between the two. Both are strike-slip faults, fractures between two different pieces of earth that move horizontally. The earth on either side of the fault moves at different rates. Rupert said it's like two cars driving at slightly different speeds in parallel lanes on the highway. If you stretch like a rubber band between those two cars, it would keep stretching, stretching, and that's how the pressure builds up there. Eventually, the metaphorical rubber band breaks, and that's when a quake happens. Residents who felt the earthquake last week are encouraged to fill out the Did You Feel It? form from the U.S. Geological Survey to help scientists with their follow-up analysis. And you can find that at usgs.gov. After being blessed and celebrated, a totem pole now stands at the Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage in what will, come next summer, become a healing garden. Boxes of soil have been prepared for spring planting. It's the first healing totem dedicated to Native boarding school survivors and their families. Raised up following a listening session conducted by the U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland last Sunday. As Rhonda McBride reports from Anchorage, it's a milestone on the long journey to heal intergenerational trauma. And for awareness, this story does contain mentions of child abuse. The totem is at once a symbol of past, present, and future. To help people like Robin Sherry move on, she was only eight when she and other Minto children were taken away to the Wrangell Institute. They never called you by name. They always called you by your number. Her number was 77. Yes, there was abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. You name it, it happened there. She says she and other girls had to cry themselves to sleep at night. Never. Never talk about it. Never. Not even to her family until recently. That's why a younger generation of Alaska natives like Richard Peterson, for whom boarding school was a positive experience, did not understand why his mother had such a hard time in life until he heard her tell her story at a family friend's house. My mom today is dealing with head trauma that she suffered as a child at the hands of her own mother because her mother received that same treatment at the Wrangell Institute. (sighs) Sorry. Peterson is president of Clinkett and Haida, a regional tribal organization in southeast Alaska. He told the gathering, heart work is hard work, and there's a lot of that ahead. But he hopes the totem pole will make it easier to start a lot of important conversations. 
We're the generation that didn't have to deal with the boarding schools, but growing up around it, I got to see the destruction that it was causing. Joe Young and his brother TJ carved the totem pole under the guidance of Norma Jean Dunn, a Thlinkit, Haida, and Simshian elder, also a boarding school survivor. It's a bunch of mixed emotions because you don't want it to be a real sad thing, but you know that it's been a lot of heartache. But Joe Young hopes the totem pole raising will be an uplifting experience, especially for the children, who were a big part of the healing ceremonies that led up to the totem raising. There was a group from the Alaska Native Charter School that sang, This Land is Your Land, in the Yupik language. This 20-foot totem will look out across the Klutna land for hundreds of years, painted in the distinctive Haida colors of red and black. At its base, a mother bear holds her cubs close. A father in human form sits above her, crowned by feathers from the tail of a female raven in a state of transformation. And at the top of the pole, nestled in her ears, are two children, a girl and a boy, gazing out towards the generations to come. I'm hoping that kids will at least be kind of mesmerized by the whole thing and kind of take it in and not just another day. On your marks, get set, go! A day of healing that begins with children both young and old. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. For KFSK, I'm Anna Floor.